Paul's prison epistle prayers, his prayers that are found in Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians are instructional. They teach us how to pray, and they also teach us what to pray. But what is often neglected is the fact that they also teach us what matters most to God. The prayers of Paul, when you examine them, they instruct us in the fact of what matters most to God. We have been looking at Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. And one of the things that we learn that matters to God is that we have a closer relationship with him. God wants us to have a close, deep relationship with him. And the reality is all believers, at least sometime in their life, at one time or the other, should be singing the song, Just a Closer Walk with Thee. That's what we should be crying out to God through song. God, a closer walk with you. Grant it, Jesus, if you please. Daily walking close with thee. Let it be, dear Lord, let it be. We want a closer personal relationship with God. We don't just simply want to be saved and going to heaven, but as we live our life on earth, we want that deeper, closer, intimate relationship with God. And this prayer that we've been looking at basically gets to that point. It's a prayer for a closer relationship with God. And that's a prayer that can be uttered by every believer in Jesus Christ. This is a timeless prayer. It wasn't just written for Paul and and, uh, those in his day. It's written for you and me. Uh, This is a prayer to know God. God wants us to know him personally, intimately, and experientially. And God wants us to know the blessings that are associated with our salvation. Our salvation is marvelous, it's great, it's amazing. If you don't believe that, read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. It talks about the riches of our salvation. But there are blessings that are associated with this great salvation. And Paul prays in this prayer that our eyes, the eyes, not our literal eyes, but the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, would be open so that we may know the hope of God's calling, that we might know the riches of the glory of God's inheritance in you and in me as Christians. And as we'll see today, that we might know the greatness of God's power. These verses are all about the power of God. And so that's what I want to zero in on as we ask God, open our eyes, God. 
enlighten our hearts that we can see this marvelous truth of the, the blessings of your power. And so this is the third and foremost blessing that Paul is praying that his readers would know. He wants them to know God's calling. He wants them to know God's inheritance. But now he says, I want you to know God's power. If you look at verse 19, Paul says that you may know what is the surpassing greatness of his power. He's zeroing in on the power of God. When it comes to God, God is not some weak, impotent person. God is almighty. God is all-powerful. And Paul says, I'm praying that your eyes will see that. That they won't be half-closed. That they won't be closed when it comes to the power of God. I'm crying out to God because God is going to have to open your eyes. It won't be some eloquent message. It won't be the words that I write, Paul said. It will take God to do this on behalf of his people so that they can see. And we must never, ever fool ourselves. It won't be because of our great singing. It won't be because of our activities. It won't be because of the things that we do as a church that causes people to change. It will be God who changes individuals. Yes, he will use singing, he will use preaching, teaching, etc., etc. But Paul is not under any delusion. He's not thinking, well, I've just told them the wonderful things of God's salvation. Uh, I've given them all of the things that God has done for them. Now they'll get it. No, Paul says, I've told them, God, all that you've done for them. I told them how you have blessed them from eternity past to the future. But now, God, you're going to have to open their eyes. Just me telling them won't do it. And so he's praying. And so we need to realize what's going to change the lives of God's people won't be us in our, of ourselves. It will be God. And so Paul is praying, God, open their eyes. Open their eyes, enlighten them, the eyes of the heart, so that they may know your power. That they may know your power. This verse is all about God's power. These remaining verses are all about God's power. The story is told of a young boy. He regularly attended Sunday school. And the pastor struck up a conversation with the young boy after church one day. He wanted to find out what the young boy is learning in Sunday school, if Sunday school was having any impact upon him. And so the pastor said to the young boy, if you tell me something that God can do, I'll give you this shiny new car. He had a toy car in his hand. And the young boy thought about it for a moment. And he said, Pastor, if you tell me something God can't do, I'll give you my parents' new car. <laughs> See, we're like the pastor. We can talk about what God can do. 
but we don't believe like that little boy, that there's nothing at all that God can't do that conflicts with his character. We don't believe that God can do all things. Oh, he does some things, and we can testify to what those things are, but he can't save my marriage. He can't save my addiction to pornography. He can't take my life and cause me to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to challenge you today from this prayer of Paul as we focus in on these verses that deal with the power of God. I want you to challenge you so that when we're finished, you tell me something that God can't do after we examine these verses. In verse 19, we have God's power described. And as I said earlier, this is a verse particularly that's all about power. Power is written all over verse 19. There are four different words that Paul uses. Power, working, strength, and might. So these are power words. And what Paul says about God's power in this verse is that God's power is great. God's power is great. Don't you ever, ever forget that. He speaks of the greatness of God's power and even goes beyond that and says the surpassing greatness of God's power. Surpassing. Other translations put it this way. Exceeding greatness. Immeasurable greatness. Incomparable greatness, overwhelming greatness. That's how great the power of God is. It's immeasurable, it's incomparable, it's exceeding, it's overwhelming. That's what Paul is trying to tell you and tell me and the Ephesians about the power of God. He wants us to understand not just that it's great, but the surpassing greatness. God's power is so great that it's beyond anything that we can imagine or think. We can't put it in a particular realm because it exceeds that. It's beyond that. And so Paul says, when I talk about God's power, the greatness of it, it's surpassing greatness. It's exceeding greatness. It's incomparable greatness. He uses that same word, surpassing, in Ephesians 2.7 to speak of the surpassing riches of God's grace. And then in chapter 3, verse 19, when he prays again for them, he talks about the love of Christ, which surpasses, which exceeds, which overwhelms all knowledge. Paul says God's power is great. It's in a whole different realm, whole different sphere. But not only that, not only is God's power great, but God's power is directed toward believers. It's directed toward you and me. Paul goes on to say the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Paul said, I don't want you to think that God's power is theoretical 
I don't want you to think it's just something out there, some force, some energy. I, I want you to understand that when it comes to the power of God, it's directed toward believers. Paul says it's directed toward me, the prisoner of Christ. It's directed toward you Ephesians, you Christian. It's directed toward believers. Please don't think of the power of God as something abstract, something that's not related to the child of God. Paul says God's power is directed toward us. And if you don't get it, in chapter 3, verse 20, he says that it's God's power that is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we might ask or think, according to the power that works in us. It's not just toward us, it's at work in us who are Christians. God's power is directed toward believers. And maybe you're finding that hard to believe. Maybe you look at your life and it seems powerless. Or maybe you need to go back to your salvation and consider your salvation, how God saved you. Do you think it was due to your ability, your strength? No, it was due to the power of God. You were lost, but as we sung, we're now found because of the power of God in Christ. You were blind couldn't see a lick, but now you see. If you've forgotten about the power of God, look at what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, where he points out that we were dead in trespasses and sin, and how we walked according to the course of this world and according to the prince of the power of the air. He says, by nature, we were the children and object of wrath, God's wrath. That, that's who we were outside of Christ. And Paul doesn't say, oh, praise God, you pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps. He doesn't say, praise God, you came to church and you found Christ. No. He said, but because of the mercy of God and his great love toward us, Christ made us alive. We were made alive with Christ. We were raised up with Christ. We were seated with Christ in the heavenlies. That's the power of God. No one has the ability to change a person who is dead in trespasses and sin and make them alive in Christ except God. And that's why Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. So hopefully you're not here as a doubter. Hopefully you're not here saying, oh, I don't believe God's power is toward me. I don't believe that God's power is at work in me. Go back to the cross. Go back to your salvation so that you can see the reality of God's power that is directed toward us. So God's power is great. God's power is directed toward us. And God's power is beyond measure. You see, I can't convince you of this. God has to open your eyes. 
And, and the thing that I've been praying for myself, God opened my eyes so that I might know the surpassing greatness of your power. It, it doesn't matter if I raise my voice. It doesn't matter if I get quiet. It takes the God to help you to see the surpassing greatness of his power. And so if you don't get anything else out of this message, go home and pray. Pray, God, open my eyes of my heart. I, I don't see it. I don't see the surpassing greatness. I, I'm dead to it almost. I need you to open my eyes. And so God's power is great. It's directed toward believers. And it's immeasurable. You can't measure the power of God. That's the only way I can explain the remaining words of verse 19. When Paul says in that verse, according to the working of the strength of his might. Only way I can explain that is that Paul somehow is trying to quantify the weight of God's power. It's like he's taking the power of God and putting it on a scale. Because he wants to know how much does it weigh. And when he puts the power of God on the scale, guess what? The needle just keeps going around and around and around and around and around. And Paul says, I, it doesn't weigh measure. <laughs> I can't tell you how much it weighs. And so he uses words. And he says that this power is according to the working of the strength of God's might. All of those are power terms. You want to talk about power? This is a power verse. Power, working, strength, might, all of those have significance. And Paul says, the best I can do. The best I can do is just take all of these words and put them together because I'm trying to communicate to you how immeasurable the power of God is. You cannot measure it. Paul says, that's all I can do. This power is great. It's directed toward believers, and it's beyond measure. What a description. What a description of the power of God. And no wonder Paul is saying, God, enlighten them. Open their eyes, the eyes of their heart, that they may know your power, your power that is great, your power that works toward believers, and your power that is immeasurable. But our text is not just interested in describing the power of God. It does that. But it also wants to display the power of God. I like to think of this passage as a show and tell passage about the power of God. You know, kids in school, oftentimes they have a show and tell time. Well, that's what Paul is doing. Paul says, let me tell you. Let me describe for you the greatness of God's power, but now let me show you how great power, God's power is. And that's what he does in verses 
20 through 23, he, he talks about, he displays the greatness of God's power. And you know what? There's a lot of things that declare the power of God. You can go from Genesis all the way to Revelation and find events and acts that display the power of God. You, you can settle in in Genesis 1, those seven days of creation, and, and just read it and think about it, and it tells us how great God's power is. Uh, you can go to the end of the Bible, to Revelation 21 and 22, and read about the new heaven and new earth, and it displays the, the power of God. But Paul says, I'm not doing any of that. I'm not going to take you through the whole Bible. Paul says, I'm just going to show you the display of God's power in Christ. I'm going to show you how God worked his power in relationship to Jesus Christ. And that's the emphasis in verses 20 through 23. He's going to tell us about how God worked, how God brought about his power as seen in Jesus Christ. And so we see that God displayed his power when he raised Jesus from the dead. <laughs> That's the first thing Paul says, that God showed up, showed his power when, when he took Jesus Christ among the dead and gave him life and raised him up. That's what he says in verse 20, verse 20 when he says he raised him from the dead. The resurrection of Christ will always be a testimony to the power of God. If you ever question whether or not God is almighty and all-powerful, go to the empty tomb. Amen. The empty tomb declares the power of God. And that's why 2 Corinthians 13, 4, Paul says that Christ lives. Why? Because of the power of God. Philippians 3.10, Paul says, I want to know Christ. And I want to know the power associated with his resurrection. Yes. That power that raised Christ from the dead. God displayed his power when he raised Christ. God displayed his power when he seated Christ. That's what Paul goes on to say in the last part of verse 20, that God seated him. I'm just trying to stay with the text. God seated Christ. And that was a significant event because it took place after the resurrection of Jesus. It assumes that Jesus has ascended back to heaven. He's now present in the, in, 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 before God. And what does God do? God didn't just raise him. God didn't just cause Christ to ascend back to heaven. But God seated him. God said, here's my chair. Sit down to next to me. And when you look at what Paul says, he says that God seated him at his right hand. You say, what's the big deal about that? If you read scripture, and particularly you read the Old Testament, the right hand was a place of privilege, the place of honor. 
a place of prestige, not just in relationship to God, but a human being. Remember how James and John, they wanted to, wanted to be on the right and one on the left, places of prestige. But here, Paul tells us that God seated Christ, and he seated him at God's right hand. And, and what Paul is doing, he's quoting Psalm 110, which is the most frequently quoted psalm in the New Testament regarding Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of Psalm 110. In that verse, the first verse, David speaks and he says, the Lord, that is Yahweh, says to my Lord, that is Jesus Christ, sit at my right hand. This is way before Christ even came into the world. David is getting a glimpse of what's going to happen. Jesus is told to be seated. God says to him, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Christ was seated. God seated him at his right hand. But there's more. He seated him in the heavenly places. Now, the heavenly places are not the same as heaven. It includes heaven, but it goes beyond that. And it's interesting because Paul uses this phrase in Ephesians when other people do not. And so in Ephesians 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, Paul talks about the fact that we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings. And where are these blessings from? In the heavenly places. Paul will go on to say in chapter 2, verse 6, that we are seated with Christ. Where? In the heavenly places. In chapter 3, verse 10, he talks about angelic beings being in, in the heavenly places. And then even in Ephesians 6, when we looked at that passage on spiritual warfare, that we, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. But what do we do? We wrestle against demonic beings, against rulers, against spiritual forces, world forces, etc. And where are they? In the heavenly places. So there's this sphere, this realm, where all of these things exist, but that's where Christ is seated. And if you don't think that's important, it means that Christ has been exalted, that God has placed him at his right hand. And if, if that's not enough, it gets better. Paul goes on to say that he's seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Do you hear that? And I think when Paul talks about rule and authority and power and dominion, he's talking about demonic beings. And he's saying that Christ has been seated far above, not among, not among, and not just simply above, but far above all of these demonic beings. That, that's Christ. God's power has seated Christ far above these demonic beings. And, and again, if that's not enough, 
Paul said, let me tell you one more thing. God seated Christ far above every name which has been named, whether in the present or in the future. It's time for us to play Jeopardy. You know how Jeopardy goes. There's different categories. Name that name is the category we want to look at. For 200, who's the greatest basketball player, Danny? LeBron James. Some of you are going to say Michael Jordan, but for 400, who's the greatest singer? Female singer, who are you going to say? Okay, Whitney, Beyonce, etc. But, but the list goes on and on. Names. You look at Paul's time. There was Nero, the king. You look prior to that, there's Herod. You come to our time, there's the president. And we got different names for presidents. I'm not talking about those bad names. I'm just talking about different names. They're real names. But, but every name that you can name, Christ has been seated above every name. Every name you can think of in the present, names that you don't even have to add their last name, their name is so well known. That, that's, no, that, that's when you know you've made it. They don't even use your last name. They just call you by your first name or they call you by some kind of title. But Christ has been seated far above every name which has been named, whether in this age or also in the one to come. God seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places far above demonic beings and far above every name you can ever imagine. God displayed his power, not just when he raised Christ, not just when he seated Christ, but God displayed his power when he subjected all things to Christ. That's what verse 22 tells us. He put all things in subjection under his feet. That takes power. Not some things, not most things, not a few things, but all things have been put in subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ. Anything that you can imagine outside of the Godhead, has been made subject to the Lord Jesus Christ, put under his feet. That's how great, how exalted Jesus Christ is. God did that. And he did that by his power. Paul's words here are an echo of Psalm 8, verse 6 where David speaks of God creating man to rule over creation. And you don't have to turn there, but David proclaimed this, talking about man, how majestic and wonderful man is. But it says in Psalm 8, verse 6, Thou dost make him to rule over all the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. This statement made about man is fulfilled in the 
ultimate man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying here is that all things have been placed under the feet of Jesus Christ. He's Lord of all things. And that might seem strange when we think about that. We might be thinking just like the writer of Hebrews thought when he wrote Hebrews 2, verse 8. He says, for in subjecting all things to Christ, God left nothing that is not subject to him. That's a statement that all things have been put under his feet. But the writer of Hebrews adds these words. But now we do not see all things subjected to him. Isn't that true? Isn't that what you're probably thinking, what I'm thinking? Paul, you're waxing eloquent. Paul, you're telling that all things have been put in subjection under the feet of Christ. But I don't see it. I don't see it. Paul says that even though you don't see it, it's a reality. The writer of Hebrews said, we don't see it now, but guess what? <laughs> the, the day is coming when we will see it. The, the day is coming in the future when we will see that all things have been put under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't take my word for it. Take Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11 for it. Verses 10 and 11 says that every knee, every knee shall bow. And just in case Paul says you don't understand what every knee means, let me tell you, I'm talking about on earth, in heaven, and under the earth. Every knee. In heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Every knee shall bow. The, the day is coming. You might not see it now, but it's coming. Where every knee shall bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. You, you can confess him now. You can bow the knee now and repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ. Or else God's power is going to bring you to that point in the future. When you're under the earth. When you're in the lake of fire, so to speak, you will bow the knee to Jesus Christ. God, by his power, has put all things in subjection under his feet. And he, that is a reality. We will see it fulfilled in the future. When every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. No knee will be excluded. No tongue will be excluded. Every knee will bow. So God displayed his power when he raised Christ. He displayed his power when he seated Christ. He displayed his power when he put all things under Christ's feet. And the last thing that I want you to see, that God displayed his power when he gave Christ as head. When he gave Christ as head, Paul ends this wonderful prayer by saying at the end of verse 22, and gave him, that is, God gave him, Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, 
the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's what God did. Gave him as head to all things. And what's especially precious to us, he gave him as head to the church. The body of Christ. That church that we talked about when we looked at Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. That church that is the love of Christ and Christ's love for the church. He gave him as head. And this is another way of saying he's Lord. When God put all things under the feet of Christ, he's saying Christ is Lord. When God gave Christ as head of the church, he's saying Christ is Lord. And so the resurrection of Christ, the exaltation of Christ, the lordship of Christ all display the power of God. If you want to see God's power, and Paul says, I want you to see it. I want your eyes to be open so that you can see it. And you can see it by means of Christ's resurrection, Christ's exaltation, and Christ's lordship. And my friends, that's why we sing. That's why we sing. And we got a number of songs that we sing regarding God's power. But we like to tell our kids, what a mighty God we serve. You know the song, what a mighty God we serve. And we acted out and bowed down. And, but we were proclaiming, what a mighty God we serve. Angels bow before him. Heaven and earth adore him. What a mighty God we serve. And that's why we sing, how great thou art. Because of the power of God. So at the beginning of the message, I ask you and challenge you to name something God can't do. Name something. Oh, don't get cute and smart and say, well, he can't sin. I know that. You know that. But name something God can't do that's in harmony with his character. Name something. After these verses, we have to be like that little boy who says that God can do it all. That there's nothing that God can't do. God can save a bad marriage. God can free us from our struggle with sin and the power of sin dominating our lives. Some of us don't believe that anymore. We, we've trafficked in sin so long that we do not believe as a believer in Jesus Christ that Christ can set me free. And that by the power of the Holy Spirit, I can say no to sin in my life. I'm not saying perfection, but we can put sin to death by the power of God. Yes. That power that raised Christ, that seated Christ, that power that made Christ Lord of all. But I need to add this one last thing. God's power does not operate independent 
of his purpose. God's power does not operate independent of its purpose. When you look at the life of Peter in Acts chapter 12, he is miraculously delivered from prison. The power of God came and did some things, and Peter is supernaturally released from prison. Paul is writing this book that we call Ephesians. Where is he? In prison. And what is he writing about? God's power. But God's power did not miraculously deliver Paul out of prison. Paul stayed in prison for some two years. And he wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. If God is so powerful, Paul, why are you still in prison as you write these words? And Paul would say, it's not a question of God's power. It's a question of God's purpose. God has purpose that I be in prison. And you might not realize it, that even though I'm in prison, he's doing a work in my life and growing me and maturing me and helping me to be what he wants me to be. You see, our perspective on this matter of God's purpose and God's power must be the same as those three Hebrew boys before they were put into the fiery furnace. And what was their testimony? They told King Nebuchadnezzar, God can deliver us. God will deliver us. But he said, even if he doesn't. That is, even if it's his purpose for God not to deliver us, even if he doesn't, I'm still going to serve the Lord. We're not going to bow down to this image of you. And my friends, that's what we have to do. We have to harmonize the purpose of God and the power of God. Some people have gone crazy on this, thinking that because of the power of God, I can do all things in Christ. You, you can only do the things in Christ that are God's will. You're not going to be Steph Curry. You're not going to be LeBron James. You're not going to be some other person. You can talk about all things all you want. But if it's not God's purpose for your life, God's not going to use his power to cause you to accomplish that. And we've used God's power out of context. So let me end. Let me end by simply saying this. God, power is governed by his purpose. And my prayer for you and my prayer for me is that God would open our eyes, that he will enlighten us, that he will illumine us, that we might see the surpassing greatness of his power toward us. So we can start making progress in our walk with God so that we can start being conformed to the image of Christ, that we can start saying no to sin, 
That's because of the enablement and the power of God that that can be a reality. And so we need to be crying out for each other, God, open our eyes, the eyes of our heart, that we may know the surpassing greatness of your power toward us. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for the opportunity for allowing us to examine this prayer by Paul. It helps us to know what really matters when it comes to our walk, when it comes to our life as Christians. And we've learned that what really matters is a closer relationship with you a deeper relationship with you. And Father, that's our desire, that we want to have this intimate, close, personal relationship with you. We want to know you, and we want to know the blessings that are associated with our salvation. Would you work in our life? Would you cause the Spirit of God, the Spirit of wisdom and of revelation to cause us to know you intimately and personally? Would you enlighten the eyes of our heart? Would you perform an operation on us so that we can know, can know your calling, your inheritance, and especially know your power? so that we're not walking in defeat, so that we're not walking discouraged, so that we're not walking thinking that you disapprove of us. But open our eyes, open our eyes to see these wonderful blessings that are ours in Jesus Christ, because they will enable us to have a closer and deeper relationship with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.